MSW Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. There's an important new book out about the CIA. It's called The Sisterhood, The Secret History of Women at the CIA. It's by Liza Mundy, the former Washington Post writer and author of five New York Times bestsellers, including the highly regarded Code Girls, about the extraordinarily talented young women who cracked German and Japanese codes during World War II. I have to say up front that the Sisterhood is one of the best histories of the CIA I have ever read. And it's not, as the title might suggest, a broadside or just about the struggle of CIA women for opportunities and recognition over the decades. There's lots of key men in her gripping narrative, too, which spans the early years of the agency after World War II right up to the present when women who weren't even born after the 9-11 attacks are now joining the CIA workforce. Liza Monday, welcome to Spy Talk. You have written an absolutely marvelous book. Uh, I've read a lot of histories of the CIA, and I think this already uh, ranks among the best written. So uh, I'm just thrilled to have you here on, on, on Spy Talk to do one of your early interviews about the new book, The Sisterhood. Now, there's so many women we could talk about uh, for hours, <laughs> but we haven't got hours. Uh, and, and I should say right off that this is a book not just about women at the CIA. This is a book about women and men at CIA. So it's really a comprehensive history with just a, a, a different angle. But anyway, uh, let's, let, let's talk about some of these marvelous women. Uh, one of them that you devote a lot of attention to is Lisa Harper, who crashed through many barriers to eventually become chief of Latin America ops. Uh, t- tell us about her. Yes, and thank you, thank you for all your your kind words. I I really appreciate it, and and thank you for pointing out that it's there's a, it's a history of the CIA from a different angle, from from a different viewpoint. Thank you, and that it's about women and men both. And Lisa Harper is so interesting. It, it's funny. I'm where I'm sitting. I'm sitting in my living room, looking out at it, my small secluded garden in Georgetown, which is where Lisa and I conducted a lot of our interviews uh, outside, often during the pandemic. And I was weirdly <laughs> flattered when she, you know, after so many clandestine meetings, she complimented me on the uh, on the garden because it has, you know, multiple means of egress and you can park far away and nobody can see you. I just, yeah. I, Once a case officer, never, uh, you never leave that it. That is so true. She was always early for meetings. She had, if we met at a, at a restaurant, she usually would go there first, sometimes a couple of days in advance and check it out. Anyway, so so, so exactly. Once a clandestine officer, you always have those instincts. Lisa is a wonderful person and she was a wonderful person to interview. And what is so interesting, and she's both unique in her gifts and talents, but her career trajectory and the way in which she was impeded and held back is very characteristic of what happened to women in the clandestine service during many decades of the Cold War. 
So Lisa was recruited out of Brown University in 1966. She never knew how she came to the agency's attention. She thought it might be because of articles she had written in the Brown Daily Herald. As the daughter of a diplomat, she had grown up overseas, spent formative years in Paris, spoke fluent French as well as other languages, was patriotic, you know, at a time when there was obviously a lot of well-founded dissent uh, about the government's particularly forays in 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 Vietnam and 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 Southeast Asia, and so she uh, so she got uh, secret letters from the agency that she tried to keep from her classmates. She wasn't sure they would approve of being recruited by the CIA, and and she had also been recruited by the State Department as a daughter of a diplomat, fluent in several languages. Uh, so so you know she was she was a premier recruit at a place, Brown University, that had been a mm-hmm. had been a fertile c- recruiting ground since the days of the OSS. Uh, so she uh, finally accepted a slot in the clandestine service, even though she also got an offer, I think, from the director of intelligence. So she enters CIA with all these remarkable skills, growing up abroad, speaking many languages and so on, and she ends up getting shunted off to a a nothing job. Right. So she wants to be a case officer. She knows what a case officer does, but they want her to be a reports officer. And as we as we know, reports officers are very important. Work at work at desks, um, processing intelligence. But she didn't want to do that. She wanted to be a, a case officer, recruiter on the street. So so the agency punished her when she was getting training at the farm by cutting short her training and sending her back to headquarters because she wouldn't go along with the kind of channeling that was very common at that time for women in the CIA being channeled to a desk job. Uh, and so, in other words, they would send these women to the mm-hmm. case officer course, the operations course. Right. But during their training, they became aware that actually that was all sort of a facade, that they were going to be shunted off into uh, lesser jobs. Very, yeah, very, very well put. And and, and a, in her case, just a job that didn't suit her talents and or, or inclinations. So so then what she does is she she just really wants to be a case officer. She's hanging around headquarters. Like many uh, like many officers, she starts dating a colleague, a male case officer. Uh, they get married and when they get married, the head of the farm calls her, yells at her for wasting training dollars, as he put it, and she is required to quit. And this was universally true in the CIA. This was true in the State Department, that when female officers got married, it was expected that they would resign. So she had to resign, but then she followed her husband to his first posting overseas in Copenhagen, and she was expected to work for free because she had gotten some training. She was expected to work under housewife cover. Yeah, this is uh, this is very common, by the yeah. way, that yeah. even women who hadn't been through the farm the training exercise. Right. The, they were expected that if they were a wife of a case officer, they were expected to pitch in in operations. Exactly. They weren't even employees of CIA. They weren't in government employees. They were just uh, spouses. Lisa Harper had to derail her own career for a while and trundle off to Denmark with her husband, but she wasn't about to be shunted aside forever. She got back into operations and succeeded brilliantly, didn't she? 
Yes, she was drafted to do assignments, increasingly difficult assignments, meeting with assets, you know, collecting information, working basically unpaid under what was called housewife cover. And she did that for 10 years. And she found in particular when they were posted, when her husband was posted to Africa, that she had a lot of that, that, that stations were overworked, that she was drafted to do basically, you know, case officer work without case officer pay or career advancement. And she did that for 10 years uh, until a uh, personnel officer back at headquarters said, okay, Lisa, it's time to, to go back to the farm. Let, make them let you finish your training so that you can re-enter as a case officer proper. And so that's what she did. She set out to finish number one in her class uh, and she did finish number one. And at that point, she said she was regarded as somebody who you you wanted in your division. What was astonishing to me, actually, is how decade after decade, these barriers still exist, even though women are increasingly proving themselves in the field. Uh, let's talk about Janine Bruckner, the, the late, great Janine Bruckner, uh, whose success so rattled the men of the agency's Jamaica station, where she was station chief, that they mounted a kind of covert op to discredit her. Right. This was what really surprised me about about the CIA as a workplace, was how often officers had to worry about being undermined by their colleagues. I'm sure this was true of male officers, but they often were part of networks, had mentors and allies. And the women were just relentlessly undermined by uh, by officers who were threatened by their success, who, just as you said, uh, they ran an operation against Janine Bruckner, accusing her of discrimination and sexual harassment. It, you could call it a form of projection because she had run into all of those uh, those problems in her own career. Incidentally, Janine was in the same farm training class as Lisa Harper originally were was. Mm-hmm. And so those two women knew each other and, and very much respected each other. Uh, and and Lisa also had operations run against her when she got her first station chief position in a Central American country. Uh, the guys in the station ran an operation a- against her. The, her predecessor uh, gave up the lease on the house, and so she didn't have a place to stay. And he told all the men in the station that she was a feminist and tried to get them to abandon the station. Uh, she was just sh- sabotaged by her predecessor and then some it's of the uh, some of the officers in the station. Oh, and I mean, just. She was doing incredible work ushering in a very, very difficult peace process. But she said that she would get cables from headquarters. And what they were obsessed with was, what Lisa, what are you going to do with the boat? There was a boat that the station owned for escape and evacuation. Uh, the old boys had enjoyed using it for you know, fishing excursions and other things. There had been an accident where some of the officers almost died. And, and, and everybody was on tenterhooks to know whether she was going to keep the boat, whether she was going to keep letting them take these excursions. And she said like half the guys in the station wanted her to give up the boat. They, they didn't want any part of this. Uh, and, and some of the old boys wanted to keep it. And the, station, and the headquarters was obsessed with, with this decision she was going to make. So, you know, women 
we're put in the position of being like sort of the school marm, you know, reining in misbehavior. And uh, and she she got rid of the boat. Uh, and they also wanted to use an old helicopter, uh, a dangerous old helicopter that they had inherited. And, and she said no to that as well. So uh, so they just constantly had to watch their backs and they didn't have the same kind of networks and allies that their male colleagues had. I'm astonished by this happening again and again through the decades, as I said before. Uh, women were often tested right away in the office in the most gross ways. I'm thinking of the anecdote you tell about Cindy Starr, uh, one of the great uh, counterterrorism analysts at uh, CIA, uh, who uh, in one of her early jobs, her, her manager slid open a desk drawer to show her some Swedish porn just to see how she would... Uh, uh, react. Um, and eventually, uh, a number of these women sort of banded together in a sisterhood, a mini sisterhood. I'm thinking of Cindy uh, and Barbara Sood and, and Gina Bennett. Uh, they found that there was strength in numbers. Yes. And that, that's one of the, I hope, the threads that comes through in the book is that with the women, both the women analysts and the women of the clandestine service, worked quietly to form a sisterhood and to help one another. And the the three women analysts who you just named were among the earliest analysts in Washington looking at the threat uh, posed by this group who nobody took seriously for years and years, ex- except them and a few others, uh, Al-Qaeda. And, and the women were very attuned to the threat of the foreign fighters who started leaving Afghanistan after the Afghan war uh, concluded in 1989. And they watched these, uh, these foreign fighters, these jihadists, as they fanned out all over the world and began communicating with each other and funded and led by Osama bin Laden, began to build a network that most people in the intelligence community and national security community found very difficult to take seriously. And those women were in place in part because, you know, the old, the, the prestigious positions from the Cold War working, say, at the SOVA, the Office of Soviet Analysis, those top positions were largely occupied by men, not exclusively, but, you know, people who were more senior. And so counterterrorism had been a, a non-prestigious field, certainly during the Cold War. And so there was an opening for the women to, mm-hmm. uh, to you know, to start to build- Take the jobs that the men didn't want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Taking the jobs that, that many men didn't want. Exactly. And, but it's an interesting point here, and I'm not sure how to take this, but a number of managers began to recognize, or they used, they began to conclude, I should say, that women were actually better intelligence analysts as a whole than men. They had a way of seeing patterns and links between things, recognize uh, little points that fed into a larger picture uh, than men did. I don't know if that generalization is true, but but the point is that, that some men began to boost women uh, at the agency because they thought they were superior at that job. Right. And and it is it is sometimes hard to know, you know, when the stereotypes are correct. For example, if you say to Barbara Sood, the analyst Barbara Sood, that, you know, women are more careful and they're more diligent, <laughs> she'll sort of scoff at that and and say, sure. you know, and and, and but but it is certainly true that at the CIA, there were certain mostly female teams 
of women who were very resilient, very attentive to detail, very attentive to networks and connections and biographical details. Another example would be the team that pinpointed Alder James, that identified Alder James as, mm-hmm. the, as the mole who was betraying the names of these Soviet agents. And, and that team was led by a man named Paul Redman, but it was mostly women, Jean Vertefoy, who's, who's well-known certainly in the intelligence community, Sandy Grimes, and others, and these those women had been also been hired in the 1960s, subjected to just egregious discrimination. They had persisted. So, if 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 nothing else, they were absolutely determined and persistent uh, to stick with tasks they had proven themselves. Uh, in both cases, the the women paying attention to Al Qaeda and the women who were tracking Aldrich James were very persistent, very careful, and able to spot dangers that I think the institution was oblivious to in Alder James's case, in part because his misbehavior, while egregious, uh, was not that much different from many of the other old boys. Meaning all, to, uh, you know, getting drunk, uh, yeah. you know, uh, lifting skirts, having affairs and so exactly. on. That was all too typical. We have to step away for a second. We'll be back in a minute. Okay, we're back now. Let's talk about another uh, uh, a woman who uh, plays a strong role in your in your marvelous book, uh, who succeeded against all odds, really triumphed. Heidi August, tell us about her. Heidi is also uh, she's a contemporary of Lisa Harper. Again, those two women speak very highly of her, and uh, she was in- interesting to me in part because she's fun to talk to, but also she's indicative of the other way in which women were discriminated against in those early days in the clandestine service. Heidi Heidi's goal when she was eleven years old was to live in Paris, was to find her way overseas. She read about the CIA growing up in Arizona. She wrote a letter to the CIA, and they sent her a brochure when she. She was 11 about how to become a clerk secretary, because that was generally the way that women were brought in as clerks and secretaries. When she was a senior at University of Colorado Boulder with a major in political science, she went to a recruiting station uh, in 1968 and she was handed the same pamphlet. So her male classmates were being recruited as case officers or analysts. She, uh, with that, you know, with the same credentials, was recruited as a clerk. And around what time was this? This was 1968. Mm-hmm. So Heidi, uh, you know, having like so many uh, uh, people apply, uh, you know, recruits to the CIA or the Foreign Service, somehow thought she would go to Europe to, you know, exciting European capitals. But instead, she was sent on her first clerk's assignment overseas to Libya. Uh, and so she happened to be in place standing on her balcony, probably the first American uh, intelligence officer or officer to watch the uprising as Muammar Gaddafi uh, you know, fomented a coup, a bloodless coup, uh, and took over Libya. And she saw that, and she had to burn out a station, a CIA station, on her first overseas assignment. And then she proceeded for the next 10 years to move around Europe and then Cambodia uh, as a clerk, but but gradually getting more and more and more responsible assignments, handling knocks, handling exfiltrated assets in Finland, uh, and basically running the office for a whole bunch of- You know, it of- strikes me, and it struck me when I was reading the book, that you could, somebody could make a movie just out of Heidi's career. I mean, yeah, I, I, she yeah. was really out there on the cutting edge or the tip of the spear, as we say, dealing with really dangerous uh, operations. 
dangerous operations in dangerous places and also very logistically gifted. I mean, there were times, not to minimize the job, but there were times when I, I reflected that being a case officer at the CIA requires a real gift for logistics, kind of like being an event planner, right? To run these operations. It's like, it's not, okay, it's not like organizing a wedding, but I mean, but you do have to make sure that everything is in place. Uh, when the and, and, and things are going to go wrong. <laughs> yeah, and things are going to go wrong. Exactly. And Heidi, Heidi also realized early on that overseas women clerks and secretaries had access when she was working at UN headquarters in Geneva, that there were a lot of women who had access to all the secrets in their offices. And she told her boss, I'm going to concentrate on recruiting women. And he was like, all right, you know, it's your career if you want to fail before your career even gets started. And, and she did. She found a dissatisfied clerk and she ran an operation that was just so marvelously successful that, that she was then um, drafted by Bill Casey to open a new station in the in the Mediterranean. Uh, so she she just again she spotted an opportunity that the others had not seen. I think I'd like to tell listeners now that your book is not a compilation of these generalizations and all the details masqueraded and so on. You describe a lot of operations in some pretty extraordinary detail. In, in a number of cases. In fact, I was, I was amused actually uh, reading through the book of how many CIA stations you identified. You'd say the CIA station in Cambodia or Laos or, or Buenos Aires or whatever. And it, it's not that long ago that whenever I called up the CIA public affairs and said, I'm going to write this and this, you have comment. And they say, oh, please don't mention that we have a station in El Salvador or Afghanistan. And yet your book is sprinkled with names, dates, and places. And, and uh, you're not giving away any classified information. But I thought that was there's extraordinary operational detail in the book that readers, I think, if they like spy stories, there's plenty of them in the book. Um, now, Heidi triumphed by, you know, again, these are incremental triumphs, but she became uh, a head of operations for uh, South Asia. So uh, is that a happy ending? Well, uh, Heidi's story is also very interesting to me because she too made an early pivot to counterterrorism. She had to handle uh, a hijacking uh, on the island of Malta, a terrible hijacking in the 1980s that went terribly wrong. Well, she wasn't handling that operation uh, or, or the hij- but she was present. Uh, she certainly wasn't responsible at all for what went wrong, but she saw it and she saw uh, the effect that terrorism was having in the Middle East uh, on civilians, on American citizens, on, on, you know, people all over the Middle East. And, and she vowed because of the deaths and that hijacking, she vowed to devote her career to counterterrorism as early as the 1980s. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, that was very, very difficult work. That was a turn, uh, for the agency, you know, that would last for decades uh, before 9-11, after 9-11, uh, dealing with terrorist attacks, and, and and with deaths and with tracking terrorists, uh, with 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 pinpointing targets, uh, the work became more lethal. Um, for you know, Heidi stayed with counterterrorism, and I believe that she uh, feels that she had a successful career and really made a difference. And and by the way, I mean they couldn't they couldn't tell me about all the operations and. Sure. Uh, 
and and I was careful with the stations that I did name, and and I would think I think they're all out there in the public record. I don't think there would be any surprises. Uh, but when you, I guess, when you asked if it's a happy ending, I mean, it was really, uh, it was really the war in Iraq after nine eleven that wore her out, and she had a, a a long career to be very proud of, and and she was not happy like many other officers with what was what what she saw happening in Iraq and she felt that the uh invasion of Iraq had been a mistake mm-hmm. and and so uh i think that she does feel that she had success in uh, the war against many different forms of terrorism but it was a long slog for everybody yeah sure was uh, there were a number of uh, particularly women who uh lobbied George Tenet, or certainly uh, senior officers, that Iraq was going to be a big mistake. Uh, was it Lisa who said it's going to be another Beirut? Uh, or that was Heidi. That was or Heidi. Heidi. Or Heidi who said that. And George Tenet belatedly many years later said you were right. Uh, do you think that their views were dismissed in part because they were woman, women or just they were or it's just a coincidence that they were happened to be women and the steamroller was moving forward to invade Iraq and and there were, and the Bush White House was uh, was uh, uh, determined to do that and no one could turn them around. You know, I think it did make a difference. I think gender for them did make a difference. The women we talked about, Gina Bennett, Barbara Sood, and Cindy Storer, who were calling attention to al-Qaeda and bin Laden, as along with other women as well, for many years, I do think because the CIA's analytic core uh, is so... I have to say, elitist and prestige conscious. So if you're on the Soviet desk during the Cold War, you're the reigning, you know, most credible uh, analyst that, that, you know, you have clout and you can get things published. And and what was a surprise to me to learn that if you want to publish anything as an analyst at the CIA, you have to get corporate buy-in. You have to, you have to run, I mean, walk around. Publish meaning, let let me just uh, interrupt here. Publish meaning publish inside the building to get your report moving up the chain. So that uh, the best result is that it's part of the president's daily brief. So, right and you can't right exactly thank you and you can't get that in to the book as they call it unless you can get your colleagues with stakes in the topic to agree so you have to have credibility with your colleagues and you have to have the ability sometimes to strong on other people and these women were junior analysts in a non-prestigious field counterterrorism their work often did you know trust because these were terrorists all over the world they would have to go to the relevant geographic desk to get to get buy in and as women as junior analysts without clout, without maybe somebody to press their case for them, it was harder to get published. It was harder to get uh, to get people to agree. Cindy Storer tried to publish a long background paper naming Al-Qaeda, you know, in about 1997, their background, who they were, who they were comprised of, and she couldn't get buy-in. It was such a long, complex paper uh, that, uh, that, that she just couldn't get people to agree. And so it never got published for the for the analytic core and and uh, for everybody inside the CIA with regard to Iraq I think by that time a lot of women had analysts had risen in in the hierarchy and and were strong voices and did resist 
the theory, the Bush administration's theory that that Iraq played a role in in the 9-11 attacks. And they did fight back, but they were up against very heavyweight, mostly male neoconservatives in the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. And and so again, I think I think when they were having to go over and brief Donald Rumsfeld or or other real heavyweights like that, it was it was it was hard. I don't I don't know though that it went any harder for the women than it was uh, yeah. than it was for the men. And 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 those analyst voices, the voices of analysts at the ground, increasingly did get listened to uh, at Langley. So during the hunt for Osama bin Laden, uh, you know, many people talk about the number of women who targeters who were involved in that operation. And those women were confident, ultimately, in their assessment, and they were listened to. You write in your book about how uh, early on, the few women in senior managerial positions were not always helpful to younger women coming in. Do you think that that has changed I I do think it has changed. It hasn't changed completely. It you know it's still it seems to me a very difficult workforce. I talked to uh, a woman case officer who was um, actually involved in the operation to apprehend Mir Amal Kanzi, the the gunman who killed CIA officers on Route 123, and she's retired now. And she said, "God, people in the outside world are so nice." Uh, that like people are so, I'm not used to people ah. being that nice to me. It, it did strike me as quite a difficult, uh, work workplace sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and so I do, I mean, the first generation, when I say the first generation, I mean like a post-war generation of women, some of whom had started during World War II, uh, those women who stuck it out, like Eloise Page, the first female overseas station chief, they were very tough and they understood that men were the power center and they understood that you could not be seen as a feminist or a rabble rouser, that the men were, got nervous. You had to be one of the boys. Yeah. And so Eloise Page was famously unhelpful to other women to the point where some women said, you know, if you're going to if you're going to include her in the book and glorify her, like, I don't know if I want to participate. And and I said, I'm not going to glorify. I mean, well, she, <laughs> she she underwent the same kind of harassment yeah. in a way that Janine Bruckner did yeah, uh, she when she took over did. as station chief in mm-hmm. Athens. They ran the men ran ops against her to, uh, to undermine had- her. Right. That, that's one of my favorite anecdotes. And she held her own and I won't give away how, uh, but it, I, it's, it was, it was a delicious uh, operation to one of a, a man who was an officer and who really admired her uh, recounted that anecdote to me. Uh, let's talk about uh, the Hall file. That's the term you bring up again and again. Let's explain that to listeners, uh, the Hall file on someone. What does that mean? You know, it's simply put, it's their reputation. It's their reputation within the agency, but it's built on quiet conversations that people have about you in the hallways. Water cooler talk. It's yeah. It's the right. It's the it's the collective consensus that I think really contributes to a person's credibility and reputation. And I know this is something that goes on. I I was at the Washington Post for many years. I mean, it's something that goes on in any workplace or any community, professional community. But I think it has an extra resonance at the CIA, in part because personnel records 
can't always be trusted. Uh, you know, this is an agency of professional trained propagandists. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes a manager who wants to offload an officer will say, oh, yeah, this person's great. Mm-hmm. So that somebody else will hire them uh, and they can, you know, offload them that way. And and so the hall file, this was, this was an expression that was used to me many times as people were extra- explaining the climate. So I can only assume that it's a little bit more intense than what goes on in just an ordinary workplace. You know, it strikes me again and again, and it's sort of astonishing that that I keep using that word astonishing because so many things in the book are astonishing that even, you know, at post 911, you know, a lot of this discrimination uh, just continued to take place. Let's talk about Molly Chambers, uh, who joined up well after the 9-11 attacks Um, and she had, she's had an interesting career. Yeah. I was very interested in the women who, this generation of women we talked about who were in place before 9-11 and were predicting the attacks. And, and, and then I was interested in the generation of women, like many Americans, men as well, who, who entered the counterterrorism fight after 9-11. I I mean, I, I remember this. I remember I was in Washington during 9-11 and, and the, you know, the surge of, of of patriotism and and coming together and solidarity and wanting to join the effort was very powerful. And Molly was, um, she was a young teenager at that time, but she felt as though the attacks absolutely changed the world that she was going to grow up in and, and function in. And she was recruited in her, she got a recruiting call in her sorority uh, at, at UC Davis. And, you know, that's that's a change from 40 years earlier, mm-hmm. uh, being recruited in a sorority. And and uh, she entered a training as an intern, even even during college, and uh, and and trained at the farm and, and went to Africa. And actually... Uh, uh, Molly and Lisa and I are going to do a panel at the Spy Museum, and I look forward to really talking to those two women about what was similar about their careers and what was different. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's still a lot of there's still a lot of sexual activity among CIA officers, and uh, it sounds like maybe it's more consensual now than maybe when Lisa was was coming up. But there you know, are there's stories still- about hallways and CIA garages and (laughs) the inventive Um, use of cars. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly, exactly. But but Molly still felt that she was getting assignments that her male colleagues uh, would not be asked to do, you know, watching out for the wife of the of the CIA director when he was when he was coming on a visit or doing sort of housekeeping work to she she opened a base station uh, or opened a safe house um she didn't get war zone credit even though she was in a very dangerous area but the the guys who came along after her did get war zone credits and so of course the women of her generation would be more sensitive i think to gender gender equity issues um and uh, but but she certainly ran into her series of setbacks. But one one of the things that was particularly important to me about Molly's career, because the counterterrorism post 9-11 period is so controversial and and um, and, and the sort of manhunting operations that went on in the apprehension of terrorists. And, and that should be controversial. I mean, certainly there were there were dark chapters. But but Molly's experience shows that there were, that the CIA was conducting manhunting and woman hunting operations in Africa um, and, and, and that, that were humanitarian 
And and so one of the assignments that Molly had was to participate in an effort to bring the Chibok girls home, the Nigerian schoolgirls who had been abducted by Boko Haram, which uh, there were so many offshoot terrorist groups that were essentially franchises of Al Qaeda as as terrorism was was proliferating and groups were splintering. She was in Africa. She attempted to bring home some of the boys who had been kidnapped by uh, the Lord's Resistance Army uh, and then Nigerian schoolgirls. So using the same techniques uh, and some very inventive operations to bring those children home that I wanted readers to understand that the war against terrorism, there were a lot of different sorts of activities uh, that, that, and maybe um, those sorts of operations are, are ones that we don't hear as much about these reunions and, and, and humanitarian missions. Let me play devil's advocate here for a moment. Um, You've written a number of stories of women triumphing over adversity uh, beautifully. Is it possible to say, or to entertain the notion that, uh, just like we say, well, women are superior, uh, as some people say, women are superior at, at analysis, intelligence analysis. Is it possible that women are not so good as men in uh, covert ops and uh, being case officers, uh, that you've uh, highlighted just the women who were uh, successful and that there are many more women who, who were not successful at that? Well, Lisa Harper certainly made a very strong case that, you know, for, for decades it was it was said, it was openly said at the CIA, women can't run an operation, women can't recruit an asset, an asset, women can't close the deal, they can't sit at the table and ask somebody to betray their country. They just don't have the the balls to, to mm. do that. And that was, you know, literally that sort of language was used. And Lisa showed that being a woman was a great advantage, often being inconspicuous, mm-hmm. underestimated, taken for granted. She could move around more easily, even in, you know, very male dominated cultures. So, and, and also there were many, many years, and this is true in politics. It's true. And that there were men who just got promoted too quickly because of the old boy system. And so guys like Oliver James, who were, you know, he was a legacy. Uh, his, his father had been in the agency. And so somebody like that just benefited from sort of career acceleration. So they were, as, as one male case officer said, you know, for many years, there were mediocre guys who got promoted who never should have been promoted. And they were very qualified women who got held back. And so I, you know, I do think that we could just reach a day when there's perfect gender equity, when there hmm. will be as you know, women. I mean, we can see that in politics. Uh, you know, the more and more women when in politics, there's you know, right? There's there's a me- mediocre and and super talented. And when the world is completely equal, there will be as many mediocre women in positions and outstanding women and outstanding men. Uh, but I don't think we're quite there yet. And I think that the women who stick with this kind of work uh, really, it, the odds are that that they're um, extraordinary in some way. That's a great way to wrap up this talk. Um, I think we have to look forward to more incremental change at the agency. Uh, what struck me in reading your book is that the CIA or the workforce, the managers, male managers need to be behind the curve uh, uh, in uh, comparison to larger American society, which seems to be at least probably I'm just talking about circles that I run in. <laughs> they seem to be ahead of where the CIA uh, people were, but um, um, uh, it's always going to be a struggle, I think is what you're saying. And you just hope for a better outcome as the years go by. 
Yes, and and I do I do think we're getting there. So, thank you for for this airtime and for your lively interest and a great conversation. Liza Monday, you have written a great book. Uh, it's just uh, really fun to have you on the show, and thank you. Look forward to talking to you again through the weeks, months, years. Likewise. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. And that's it for another week's edition of Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our complete podcast archive at the MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, do check out the spytalk.co news site on Substack, where I and a deep bench of contributing national security writers offer a steady diet of scoops and original analyses. Just Google Spy Talk or, hey, use AI, and you'll quickly find your way there. This edition of the Spy Talk podcast was smoothly produced, as usual, by Kanai and edited by Molly Hockey for MSW Media. Oh, and by the way, that music you've been hearing, that's the soundtrack of Salt, the 2010 thriller starring Angelina Jolie as a super athletic CIA spy. It's an entirely preposterous movie. I can think of many far more authentic thrillers starring women in key intelligence roles, but, you know, we just like the score. I'm Jeff Stein for Spy Talk. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. M-S-W-Media.